Yes, hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And I think we've got a really good episode this week. Our buddy, Eric Flanagan, is going to join us shortly for a discussion about the Christic Institute shows, which took place 33 years ago to the day. But first, we've got a surprise Springsteen appearance to discuss. Last week at Stand Up for Heroes in New York, he joined John Mellencamp for one song, Wasted Days, and then he did four songs himself, acoustic. And I got to say, I like Wasted Days here more than I did on the album. I like seeing those two guys who are linked from the 80s in terms of uh, both Heartland rockers, as the, a lot of the music press like to call them. And it just looked pretty cool, kind of big brother, little brother uh, on stage there and and I really like the live debut of Addicted to Romance. I, it did a lot more for me here than it did on the album or on the studio version that was released a couple months ago. Sound a little bit like The Wall here, and uh, which I only noticed today. Yeah, I agree that Addicted to Romance worked better solo acoustic. Take nothing away from Patty. I thought she sounded nice on the studio version, but there's something about Bruce being alone on the stage that makes it a little bit more dramatic. And Wasted Days, I I don't know what there is to say about that one. I didn't particularly love it when we talked about the studio version. It doesn't do much for me. I think Bruce covered a lot of the same territory, sort of a man later in life, obviously on Letter to You, most specifically with Last Man Standing, which of course is the emotional center point of the entire show on the 2023 tour and presumably into 2024. Another song that made its live debut at, at this show, The Power of Prayer, also from from Letter to You. And I thought it was pretty cool. I like I liked this arrangement. He sounded good on it. And I would love to see it on the tour next year. Yeah, you know, that's one of my favorites. I think there's a lot of people that disagree with me on that. And I get it. It is true that Power of Prayer and House of a Thousand Guitars in particular sound alike. I wouldn't use the word generic. I actually found them to be pretty compelling, as we discussed when we first reviewed Letter to You. But I think there's something about that three-song sequence on the record. And as we know, and I just mentioned, Bruce has utilized Last Man Standing so well during the show. I also would like to see Power of Prayer pop up at some point. I would prefer a band version because I think it would sound really, really great, but you could also see him doing an acoustic version like he did at Stand Up For Heroes. The other two songs he did, Working on the Highway and Dancing in the Dark, have been performed frequently at Stand Up For Heroes, but because of the two live debuts, including Addicted to Romance, which is barely on anybody's radar, uh, I would say this is one of the more interesting stand-up for hero sets uh, he's done. Yeah, I don't know if that gives us any insight into changes for next year. I tend to doubt it. I think we'll both agree that Addicted to Romance is unlikely to be played. Yeah. I don't know if there's going to be more of a focus at any point on Letter to You. I would doubt it, <laughs> considering where we are <laughs> and how far into the tour. But I do keep my fingers crossed that some of that material is going to be played more. Power of Prayer, of course, I think a lot of people would like to see Janie Needs a Shooter. So we'll see where it goes. But we've got a couple of months before we find out. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think it's a little early to be uh, trying to use this to to see what changes could happen. Uh, we got, what, four months to go. I'm not expecting a lot of change next year, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, we'll see. I, just the important thing was that Bruce looked good. He, he sounded good. It seems like he's recovering or perhaps fully recovered. And that's just great news. So we're both looking forward to next year. 
And now let's move on to two shows, which I think there will be total agreement on that they are quite legendary. And those are the Christic Institute shows. And for that, we're going to bring in our guest, Eric. Would you like to take the honors, Flynn? Sure. Uh, Eric really doesn't need much introduction to our, to our listeners. He was the editor for Backstreet's Magazine for years. And now he writes the Nugs reviews on for their website on Bruce's archive releases. And, and he was on our show we, when we did the roundtable of the, all the editors from Backstreet's Magazine. So, Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, friends. How are you? We're good. Good. Great to have you back. I appreciate the invitation. And, uh, you know, you picked a subject that would lure me back for sure. We're excited to have you here to talk about this subject, because as we were just saying before we started, this really is one of the unique circumstances in Bruce's career. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably worthwhile if you guys agree to kind of take everybody back to like set the stage, you know. Yes, what, please what, do. Yeah. Yes. You know, November 1990 is you know, two years past when Bruce had last toured, you know, the end of the Amnesty Tour in 88. The the band had been parked, if that's a polite way to put it, told, <laughs> to, told to park elsewhere for a while, or who knows, you know, indefinitely. What Bruce was going to do next was an answer we did not know. And we were all waiting to, and especially at Backstreet's at the time, you know, the speculation about what would follow that tour, what would follow Bruce not performing with the E Street Band, um, was all anybody wanted to know. And out of seemingly out of nowhere, right, there's an announcement that Bruce is going to perform benefit concerts, two of them, in November, the Shrine Auditorium with Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown, and that he would be performing acoustically. And that news, the idea that not only is Bruce Springsteen going to play his first public concert, ticketed concert in two years, but he's going to play his first acoustic concert in in modern times was shocking. It was inspiring. It was like, oh my God, I have to be there. How tough is this ticket going to be? We have to find our way there one way or another. And and many of us did make that effort to see a complete unknown that that in a pre-internet world, nobody was there for sound check. We had no idea what we were walking into, with the possible exception of saying to ourselves, I guess he'll play some Nebraska material because he's playing solo and he's playing acoustic. But other than that, who knew? And so we wondered and we pondered and we thought about what it could be. But part of what makes the Christic show so magical and why it was so extraordinary to be there and why I might add that when people ask me, what was the best Springsteen show I ever saw? Ultimately, I I typically say the Christic shows because... I guess for me, the thrill of a complete unknown, no idea what was going to happen, made that the the most extraordinary ride of all. All right. So my question was going to be, what were your expectations walking in? But it sounds like you really didn't didn't have have any. Well, I don't I don't know how you could like it, it's almost like we have to erase devils and dust from our mind. We have to erase Tom Joad from our mind. You have to go back to when. Now, now to be fair, 1986, he shows up at the Bridge School concert and he plays a an acoustic set, but you know most of it is not solo acoustic. Most of it's with Danny and Nils. But you know the Born in the USA version that obviously for that was the first time any of us heard the the redone Born in the USA. 
maybe was the clue as to where things might go. But the the spirit of the bridge show is pretty jovial and fun yeah. and lighthearted, you know, other than maybe that moment. Follow that dream's beautiful and, you know, fire is fun and we've all seen the video. But maybe something too about the time, you know, the benefit of the Christic Institute and this is sort of, you know, Iran Contra and what's going down in South America and, you know, Jackson once again adjacent to Bruce at his most political moment. There was a sense that something serious was going on here. This was a serious organization with a serious political agenda. And the fact that Bruce chose that moment, those musical partners and that organization to bring himself back into the public zeitgeist as a performance just portended something ominous, great. We didn't know. You know, that was the beauty of it is just the complete it other than we knew we were going to see something that for all intents and purposes, nobody had seen unless you grew up on the shore and saw him in 1972, Bruce Springsteen playing acoustically. I think another important part of the story as he arrives at November 16th, 1990, we didn't know this at the time. Maybe you did. I certainly didn't. He's kind of lost artistically. Now we know about this period because He's written about it. We've heard other people. We know about what became the Human Touch Sessions. But he's really searching for his place in the musical world in 1990. And it seems like when he takes the stage that night, he's not really sure how it's going to work out. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think there's there's that's a multidimensional response to that, Hal, which is that I think as evidenced by quotes from this show, like, but you don't really know me. Yeah. And the way in which he addresses the crowd, I think the very persona of Bruce Springsteen was in question. He himself was asking, who am I now that I've made it to this pinnacle and achieved all my dreams and had a marriage and had a breakup and now has a new marriage and a family and all those good things. But like, I think the identity question of who he was going forward was very much in his mind. That's an assumption on my part, but I think that's what it feels like when you listen to this show. And then there's also that, you know, depending on how you see Tunnel of Love, was it a solo record? Was it demos for the band that became a solo record? Is it more like Nebraska or was it sort of, you know, it ultimately ended up as a solo record with contributions from the E Street Band. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, the songs he's writing that we hear the first several of in the Christic show and this question that you've raised, Hal, about what was going on in 1990 and the uncertainty around what he was doing. The one thing we can say for sure is he knew at that point he was writing songs that weren't for the band for the first time. You know, he knew whatever this new material was, it was not going to be an E Street Band record. And that was new ground. That was new territory. He wasn't, you know, and so what we get to hear here in this show, what he does debut, you know, some of them sound, I think, quite accomplished and, and finished. And you can hear what real world is going to be as he does it. Other songs, maybe not quite as much. They feel maybe like they were written within the last couple of weeks. And he's just putting those thoughts out for the very first time, you know, uh, and the song is still coming together. Uh, I think Soul Driver feels like a song that's almost couldn't have been born many days before that would be my assumption because it feels so fresh. So I just think, again, the to witness him exploring this new ground publicly for the first time and absolutely for the first time revealing so much more 
of a vulnerable side of who he is. The fragility, the intimacy with which he shares his life, his struggles, going to see a psychiatrist, all these things that are like, you don't really know any of that until that show. And so the seeds of Broadway are born here. The seeds of Joad are born here. It's such a line in the sand between what came before and what became after. And arguably, you know, whatever is solo Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska side, this is when it starts. You mentioned Broadway. Uh, that was my first thought when I was listening to that, or that was a thought I had, in that there are seven songs from these two shows that ended up in, in the Broadway set. That's uh, nearly half of, of what uh, of the Broadway show. And the way the stories that he told at at the at the Christic shows, really, they 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 were more similar to Broadway than to, say, the Joad or even the Devils and Dust tour. I think that's true. But I would say I think the unvarnished, unpolished, I'm not really thinking about how this, you know, I think there's an openness that he has in this show that that. You know, Broadway is a polished example of, but that you're getting the raw, real thing at the Christic show. And, you know, again, one thing that hadn't struck me before, but did strike me as I was listening to the shows back in recent days is how much more he talks the second night. There are more stories and more setups. And I think I think gaining confidence and comfort in his own vulnerability, you see that sort of pour forth as he gets even more intimate And, you know, there's just those extraordinary lines like, you know, talking about driving around with his dad and, you know, living in a house that had a, I forget the number, but 39 and a half. Yeah, 39 and a half. And he just says, what's a half, you know, ahead of Mansion on the Hill. Like these are just stinging reveals here. And it's just one after another after another, you know, maybe culminating the second night in the wish as he just explains this relationship to his mother after basing so many of the key songs in his catalog on his father. So I think the notion of blending story and song and being willing to go back and reveal and tell these intimate tales about himself, his family, his upbringing and all that stuff is Broadway. But it's like, it's, it's just even so much more vulnerable here. It's so much more raw. And I think, you know, when we walked out as much as, and, and I will say this and perhaps controversially, to me, Broadway is about songs in service of the stories. They're almost there just to reinforce what he just told you. But I'm going to argue, with a couple exceptions maybe, that those versions of the songs are not versions of those songs I'm going to return to. Right. They're not revelations in terms of their acoustic arrangements. These versions? That version of Darkness on the Edge of Town? I couldn't get it out of my sternum for weeks. It blew my mind. I couldn't believe he was playing it that way. So there's so many readings from the Christic show. Tougher than the rest on piano might be the greatest tougher than the rest ever played. It's so magical. And so at Broadway, you know, yes, there are moments that I loved in performance, but I think the songs are just so strong. They're sung with such conviction. So much vulnerability comes through. And even, you know, Hal as a guitar player, maybe you noticed this too, like that resonating bass note oh, on the yeah. 12 string. It's just like, what is happening here? You just used the word that I wrote down when I was listening to the first show yesterday, vulnerability. He has never been 
more vulnerable on stage than these two nights. I don't even think if you went back early in his career before he was, quote unquote, Bruce Springsteen, there was ever a moment where he was this vulnerable. Because even when he was younger, we know he believed in himself. You know, and this goes back to a little of what we were talking about a little before. I don't know at this moment if he fully believes in himself. It's like what you were saying. He was deconstructing the idea of Bruce Springsteen in these shows. Mm -hmm. And he all, you know, I think there's a moment in the second night where he asks if he's figured it out yet. You know, I've spent in talks about these enormous periods of time that he's felt feeling isolated and he kind of sets up the question. And then he just says, I haven't, I haven't done it. Like he tells you in that moment that he has not achieved this. He's still hanging in this, this ambiguous sense of self. He so much as says it out loud. And, uh, you know, going back to what I obviously I did not see him in 1972. I've heard him in 1973. None of us have really heard him acoustically before that, other than the demos for Hammond and the demos that he did recording. But I think what he had going in the early days was the shtick, the storytelling, the humor. And that's brilliant in that time. And, it, you know, I could listen to the Ducky Slattery story forever. But here it's not humor. You know, there's some, in fact, there's some great moments in this that are funny, but there's just so much more self-exposure, you know, he's just willing to kind of put it all out there. And I think, we, you know, I remember after the first night, just kind of like, I'm still processing this. What just happened? What did he say? What did it all mean? This, because the, the swagger that was there in 85 and in a way continues into 88, it is just gone. It's just vanished. There is no swagger on this stage other than the unbelievable quality of the performances and the way he plays. Now, going back to that opening night, that first night mm -hmm. when he uh, walked on stage, he sounds nervous uh, when he gave his, if you're moved to clap along, please don't. Please don't. And if I, ha I haven't done this in a while, so... Mm -hmm. um, like I said, if you haven't, if you move the clap, clap along, please don't. How did that feel hearing that in the audience? What is what was your reaction in, in that in those few moments? Well, you know, there was a well, I'll say two things here. One is just a little factoid I can drop out here. He rehearsed for two days that we know of. He rehearsed on November 13th and 14th for these shows. And, you know, to have him come out and start on that message, as you say, Flynn, without the assuredness that we were so used to, you know, like coming out to do Born in the USA and like, I don't even, uh, I don't even need to enunciate the numbers. I can just go, uh, uh, you know, and, and everybody knows <laughs> what I'm doing. It all works. I've got this crowd eating out of the palm of my hand from the start. Here he's walking out and it's like, who are you? Who am I? Like it was all back in question again. And I remember just, you know, like I remember some people like, oh, he's scolding us or, you know, that that sense that he's sort of admonishing the audience. But I think it was sort of setting the tone that like this is not the Bruce show. This is not the anthem. Your fists will not be in the air, people. This is something very, very different. And I think the other thing we haven't acknowledged yet, as I sort of started to say, like we assume Nebraska and Nebraska material. And obviously we got a lovely dose of that in the show. We wondered if there would be new songs and we were treated to more than we could have imagined. I don't think anybody believed he would play a piano. And also, again, in the I don't want to say narrow, but, you know, certainly in 84, 85 and 88, 
he was not, you know, what we now know from the reunion era on the willingness to go back to songs from the early days just wasn't happening. Right. And so the idea that he would go back to something like Wild Billy's Circus, like that, that was shocking that that was even in consideration or in play that that could happen at this show. So it just felt like all bets were off. We're, you know, we're reinventing the whole thing again. It was like, tear it all down and start it up again. And even the most familiar songs felt like they had been completely transformed. And Darkness is such a fantastic example of that. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Numb But The Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave's special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Well, let's go back to the beginning because as Flynn said, he came out, he sounds nervous. He launches into a version of Brilliant Disguise. He almost sounds like to me on tape, unfortunately, I wasn't there, Mm -hmm. which kills me to this day. (laughs) But he sounds like he has an ache in his body, like he's like hurting. Now, we know there's very positive things going on in his life. Patty That's right. has, has become his wife and Evan has been born. So Evan's in got- the crowd, he says at one point, right? Oh, wheel, him out. wheel him on out. Yeah, wheel him on out. <laughs> so we know that emotionally, he's got things in his life that he's never had before. And, and I think from what he has said, perhaps he never thought he'd have them. But yet he seems, as I think we've said before, he seems lonely. He seems a little lost and he launches into brilliant disguise. How did the crowd respond to that? Because it's a familiar song. It was a, it was a hit, but mm-hmm. yet it's being played in an arrangement that really, I don't want to use the word deconstructs again, but that's really the accurate word there. He's, he's taking apart like what he's done prior. Yeah. I mean, I think stunned is the right word, you know, like again, no idea what he's going to open with. That's what he picks to play. It's absolutely stunning. You get, you can feel again, we're going to overuse this word 
all night as we speak about it, but this vulnerability coming through in it. And I think, you know, to your point, there were a lot of good things happening in his life at that point, sort of biographically, but we weren't thinking about any of that, right? He, you know, and I, and I think, you know, it's always been the, what makes Tunnel of Love such a brilliant enigma of a record, which is like, you know, these songs, which we all know and love that the, the fragility of relationships is, is the undercurrent to so many of them and Brilliant Disguise being one of them. And, you know, when the song came out, as we all know, some people wondered what was the status of his relationship then. And then he comes out and does it. And he just, you know, it, we're all wondering like, well, what, what does that speak? What does that say about where his mental, where, where, not mental, where, where, where is his emotional state of mind now? And I, you know, again, we can't sit here all night and play armchair psychologist about what's going on with him. But I think through the quotes that he gives in this show, I think he's, you know, it's one thing to, was he in a happy place? Was he with the person he wanted to be with for the rest of his life? Did he have his first child? Yes, yes, yes. All those things are happening. But I don't think that erases the path by which you got there, the questions that you asked and the uncertainty about whether, you know, it's like whether you want to call it imposter syndrome or like, do I deserve this? Am I capable of being the person that deserves this good things that are happening in my life? Given all the isolation I felt along the way that he speaks to multiple times in this show or in these shows. So I think when he played the song, it was just a stunner and that it, it, and you knew that you were in for an emotional ride. Um, Cause as beautifully as it was performed on the tunnel of love tour, it was performed in its big lush arrangement with the band and yeah, taken down to the, to the, to the studs underneath it is just this, confessional beautiful song and he he plays it with complete conviction and going back to that first night he he does a couple of nebraska songs mansion on the hill and reason to believe mm -hmm. and then he he really makes a makes a u-turn here when he launches into talks about uh bonnie Raitt and being yeah. seeing a red-headed woman and then he launches into this it's a fun song it's uh it's it's totally different than what he had just played the previous four and what kind of, how did that feel in, in the audience? I mean, it was kind of a tension release after four very tension songs. It was. And it also, of course, was the moment where we're like, oh my God, new song, you know, like <laughs> he's playing something new. I can't believe it. There's something new here. And it was so funny. And I also, you know, again, playing the tape back, playing the live archive release back, I should say, you know, listening to him, you know, the first night he talks primarily about Bonnie and then the second night he kind of puts Patty and Bonnie together and talks about it. But, you know, you think about like getting all the way to like the cunnilingus discussion that comes in later tours. Like this is right. the first, you know, it felt provocative. It felt candid. It felt uh, uh, naughty, a little bit naughty. You know what he was saying? If you got down on your knees and tasted like this was a, a side we hadn't seen in song before. You know, occasionally there might be a comment from the stage or something like that. But now it was being manifest in the song. And I think, you know, what we felt was like, this is a rollicking, fun, great song that's clearly a tribute to Patty. But even it, in its humorous way and its rollicking arrangement, was confessional, you know? And it felt like more of the real Bruce Springsteen, the one that he told us we didn't know, was coming out in the show. And you certainly got that in the next song, 57 Channels, which begins with the line, I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills. 
That's right. With a dump truck, $100,000 bills. And it was also redheaded woman aside. It's like, this is like, oh, we're in LA now. He lives in Los Angeles now. This is a song about his life right now in Los Angeles. And, you know, Ain't Got You is a little bit of that sentiment to be sure and kind of touches on that same subject. But, you know, it's funny how much I liked 57 channels in these shows and ultimately how much I didn't ultimately think it was fully realized when it made the record later. And then, of course, when it kind of was trying to be spun a little bit more politically after that. But as a just commentary on, you know, the life we all lived at the time and the, you know, the the preponderance of cable TV and satellite television and and those, lo- you know, the lonely nights he used to spend driving down the Jersey Turnpike and writing songs about that. It felt like, well, guess what I do now? I'm with my partner and we're up late at night and we're turning the channels and watching this stuff and there's nothing there. So it just felt clever and of the moment and very, very Los Angeles. Now, the second night, he introduced it a little bit more. I don't think he said much about it that first night. But on the second night, so. he talked about he, what? I believe you're right. Yeah. But on the second night, he, he introduced it. He said that uh, Bob Dylan was giving an interview and the guy said, you made you, you just made this rock and roll film, which could possibly possibly be the worst film ever made. Yeah, and, and then uh, he said Hearts that, of Fire. I think it's Hearts of Fire, isn't that? Okay, I was going to ask that. And then, mm-hmm. uh, then he said that uh, that Bob said the director said to him, you know, just be yourself. And and Bob said, which one? And Bruce said he knew exactly what he was what he was referring to. And then what cracks me up is that he then said, "This is a story of the real me, and it's fifty seven channels." I don't see Bruce Springsteen being a couch potato watching television. I don't know. I think he's a night owl. And if you're a night owl inherently and you're not recording or writing songs, you're probably watching a lot of television. Um, and I love that reference to Dylan that he gives. And again, this sort of which one just is, but you don't really know me. Like it, it's all in line with this, like what you whether it's Bob or him and what, whatever you think, you know, and we're probably being guilty of it right here, right now on this podcast, like whatever you think, you know, about these superstars and these musicians that we've all hold in such reverence and have seen so many times. And we pour over everything they do in every interview. And we're, we're me, you, all of us, what what have we done? We're, We're into interpreting Bruce Springsteen. That's what we do. But that, the truth of the matter is, until you know the man, you don't know me. You don't know Dylan. You don't know the difference between the two. And I just, again, you could get super meta about it. Well, maybe this is his meta take on not being that guy, but this itself is its own persona. But <laughs> it didn't feel like that. This felt like it was just a huge, like, we pulled the curtain back and this is as close as we ever got to the man. Let me rephrase that. There are many moments that have happened along the way in shows, later shows, where I think the man has come through. But this whole night, two nights, that's what it was. It was entirely that. It was It was the greatest reveal of all time for him. And following 57 Channels, he goes into my father's house. Now, interestingly, I thought when you guys were talking about Broadway, it hit me. The first night after 57 Channels, he does My Father's House. The Mm -hmm. second night, he says, I want to do a song for my mother, and he plays The Wish. Now, speaking of Broadway, those two songs are then paired in Broadway 27 years later, which is pretty remarkable that we always talk about how the doctor connected throughout his career. 
there's a perfect example of that. I mean, these concepts that he was singing about here on these two nights when he was being extremely vulnerable in 1990 are a key part of his life story as he portrays it in the Broadway show. Yeah, you're so right. That's so keenly observed, Al. And and the story he tells this night, right, is the first time it's like, Doc, I'm going to see a psychiatrist. And he explains this whole thing. But but again, back to the Dylan story, back to like, but you don't really know me. I mean, I'm just going to read out loud what he says here. He says, I want you to tell me what you think you're doing. This is what the psychiatrist says back to him when he points out that he's been driving back to his old neighborhood in in where he grew up. He does it multiple times a week. And he's wondering, like, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And then Bruce says, like, well, that's what I'm paying you for. And then the psychiatrist says, well, what you're doing is something bad happened. You're going back. You're thinking you can make it right again. Something went wrong. You keep going back to see if you can fix it and somehow make it right. And I sat there and I said, that's what I'm doing. And he said, well, you can't. I love I mean, that it's line. devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And there's so, you know, Flynn, there's so many lines in this, these performances. <laughs> there's so many just, and they didn't get repeated. You know, they, they, they kind of live for this one night of, of, again, just pure candor and pure vulnerability. Um, and that line, and then that's it. He goes right into the song. Well, you can't. Boom. And then he plays My Father's House. I mean, it, it's... Uh, well, that's uh, probably one of the greatest intros, song no. pairings of his career. Yeah, I mean, it's just, he's telling you the truth. Um, and it's and it's a real hard, heavy truth. Um, I love knowing that about, I love that he wanted to tell us. I think it humanized him greatly. I think it made him more relatable. I think it made all of our own struggles of what we have as we try to reconcile our past or our parents or our relationships or whatever it is. It's like, oh my God, he does too. Now, then after The Wish, he went into, after I guess My Father's South both both nights, 10th Avenue on piano. I remember at the time, Rolling Stone kind of, they called it like a, a eulogy to the E Street Band. I'm not really sure I hear that. What do you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't. On that? I don't. I don't buy that. I just, you know, the last time he played solo piano in a show would have been December '78, right? He's playing the Promise, and I did not see the Darkness tour. I did not see those performances. I did not see him play solo piano. But I'll tell you what: when he moved, when he put the guitar down and walked to that piano, it was like. The the anticipation, the buzz, the like, oh, my God, it's about to happen. What is he going to do? And then just the way that he so carefully starts to find the initial notes and then you realize what it is. And it's like, oh, my God, he's doing 10th Avenue. Like that's that's it was just it was like wish fulfillment, you know, holy shit. He's really doing this thing that I never, ever thought I would see. And and again, even in the playing, right, that I don't know what you want to say, like just that careful way in which he's finding his way to figure those notes out. You know, I, I it reminds me, guys, of like one of my very, very, very favorite things on the Devils and Dust Tour, which is that solo version of Tunnel of Love. Right. Where he just he does it in Grand Rapids. It's fucking devastating. It's- and you just hear him like feeling his way through it. And then as it all coalesces and like 10th Avenue was like that, then he finds his groove and he's enjoying it. You know, he gets a little lost along the way to figure it out. But like he hangs on that for that moment. But just I, I didn't like 
even at that moment, I hadn't thought about like, oh yeah, I remember he used to play The Promise really well. It's like, oh my God, can he do this? Oh my God, he's doing it. Oh my God, it sounds amazing. You know, it just was, it, that's more of a moment where I think, I don't remember this, but if I was going to cry in that show, that was the first place I was going to cry. Now, after 10th Avenue, the first night he did Atlantic City and Wild mm-hmm. Billy's Circus Story, which, as you already mentioned, would have been, <laughs> nobody could have ever predicted that. And then the second night he did, and that's in those two slots, he did Soul Driver and State Trooper. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing that I felt listening to the shows back those are actually two quite different segments. And the second night, he goes even darker. And we'll, yeah. we'll discuss the first night as well. But the pairing of Soul Driver into State Trooper, which there's no pause, is mm-hmm. really chilling. It is. It is. I mean, I'm a huge State Trooper fan. I got to see it in 84. It wasn't done very often, but I did get to see it in Oakland in an absolutely devastating version. Um, and it's, you know, it's a short read of it here. I mean, it's, it's got that rhythm and it's got that darkness and it's got that howling. Um, and uh, with Soul Driver, again, like, yeah, these just felt like dark corners of the world. They felt more character driven, I think, than maybe some of the songs that had preceded them. But it did feel like we were in a, you know, down a dark, down a dark road, you know, and in a dark alley. And that maybe, guys, that I think, again, hard to retain the context when we hear it now. But I do think some of those choices, I think when the lights go out, obviously, the way he introduces it um, speaks to this, too. But like some of that, I think, was about the subject matter that the Christic is into. Right. And, and what was going on in the country at the time. And I think he felt a darkness that was coming through in some of that writing. And I think, you know, State Trooper isn't an overtly political song and. And, uh, you know, Soul Driver may not be either, but I feel like those were meant to be kind of uh, takes on what the broader subject of the evening was really about. That sequence has always been my favorite part of both of these shows. Now, not having been there, I would imagine the first show really stands as more significant for those who were there because of the surprise factor. But the second night, Really, the way he tailored the set list with The Wish, Tougher Than the Rest, Soul Driver, and State Trooper, which are the four changes, mm-hmm. it, it's just what a listen it is. It really is amazing. I think you're I think you're onto something there, too, because as I said earlier, I don't think I clocked before how much more storytelling there is in the second night than the first. And I think there is a expected nervousness, slight anxiety, trepidation. I haven't done this in a while. He told us and it was true. And so the magic of just the pure astonishment of not knowing what was going to get played and hearing some of these songs for the very, very first time in these arrangements, especially, you know, something like Darkness. But the second night, I think as I listen now, that's, that's, I mean, this is stupid to give this is a 10.10101 and this is a 10.10101010. But like, yeah, that second night on playback is probably ever so slightly more masterful. And the first one is ever so slightly more vulnerable. Well, I was going to say he seemed, as we we said earlier, he seemed he was vulnerable that first night. He seemed a little bit nervous. I was even wondering if he was just nervous about performing, period. Yeah, but for sure. It, but it seemed like that second night he he found it. He found he refound that confidence that he that he always had. And it's, and I, he just felt more comfortable. I think that's true. 
but that, but but with that comfort, I think also came more candor, you know. And I think, you know, as we've said, there's devastating quotes all along the way here. But but again, that intro to Mansion on the Hill, the second night, just really guts me. Um, what he talks about in Nebraska, that you know, it's even a more vivid take on when you know he kind of says like, you don't feel connections with the law or anything. Like it start, he starts to expand on the idea a little bit. And this whole notion of like feeling isolated for long periods, I think he says something about for enormous periods of time, I felt isolated um, and that he hasn't reconciled that yet. So, you know, I agree that there probably is a understandable performance confidence that comes in the second night. But I feel like he's only emboldened in being even, you know, further revealing and honest. Just quickly to not skip over the first night. What do you remember about Atlantic City, which was really the first time it was played live in what was really the album arrangement? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it it felt like the purest take of the night, you know, like, okay, this is kind of being played in the way that I would expect it to be played. It felt the most like, you know, I think Nebraska probably falls in that category too itself. But yeah, I love that version. And I love as much as I love the E Street Band arrangement, and I do, I love those 84, July, <clears throat> August 84 versions of the song and September, October 2, um, hearing it in its pure form. And 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 I I want to say, especially coming out of 10th Avenue, that Atlantic City felt like, you know, he just had the full confidence in playing it that way. And it's just a masterful song, again, a masterful performance and a and and now you knew like, oh, my God, we're getting, you know, we're getting the dose of Nebraska that I think we all kind of hoped we would get. All right. Now, going back to the song Nebraska on the first night, it goes from Wild Billies, which obviously mm-hmm. has the last line about Nebraska is our next stop. So that's kind of a that's kind of a whiplash in uh, in tone. But then on the second night is how was how was getting at Soul Driver, State Trooper, Nebraska. Now that's mm-hmm. that's pretty dark. So it was almost a very different. It started with it started in a different place each night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's almost you know point blank wreck on the highway, uh, drive all night, dark stolen that, stolen, stolen car, car from those stretches of the river tour. Um, I mean, I just want to point out that as simple as it seems now. The moment when Wild Billy's ends and he says Nebraska and then he goes into it, it was it was one of these like, oh, my God, like that's <laughs> how you're thinking these two together. It was just this is freaking genius. <laughs> and so that that pairing blew my mind that night. To, and to think that those two songs would be somehow linked together was insane. But, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Soul Driver State Trooper Nebraska, when the lights go out, is like it was heavy. It was dark. It and again, that's why I want to reinforce a little bit, but like the, the, the occasion, the night, the whole thing felt like it was steeped in uh, darkness is too easy to say, but like, these are dark songs about dark times, you know, and that to do, and that's why I guess I was contrasting a little bit, um, born in the USA acoustic aside that the bridge is this kind of, you know, he's putting out the live record like a month later, you know, like the, the bridge happens in October 86 and the live record comes out. Like we're still kind of riding the wave that it existed as part of Born in the USA. This just feels like completely disconnected from that. And that you just got the feeling, Flynn, I think that like this, not dissimilar from the time at which he wrote those Nebraska songs and kind of went down, you know, a path as dark as the song Nebraska itself. 
some part of that was back and maybe it wasn't as personal. Maybe it was more, you know, cultural or societal. Well, and he says it in the intro to Nebraska. He says, this is a song about disconnection and isolation. And then he talks about the dangers of isolation. Yeah. It's And it's funny hearing it back now because we just spent so much time with the Warren Zanes book and we spoke to Warren. And obviously this is such a theme of that book and the the experience Bruce was having in 82, 83, but he's obviously still feeling it here because it really plays like a warning. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't argue with any of that. I do think this is a, a callback to that time. And, and as you say, on the second night in that longer intro, you know, is when he, right. He expounds on this idea of both his personal struggles of feeling isolated and finding connection and community and the enormous amount of time that he spent in that state. And now seeing that, you know, and I think projecting or extrapolating out that he knows that there are many, many people in America at that moment that are in that place. It's not just like, hey, they closed up the textile mill. It's not just I lost my job. It's like I'm in I'm I'm in a dire, dark place where I could possibly cross the line and that maybe even our government is doing things that are all they're doing is exacerbating that for people around the world, you know, that which is part of what the Christic is was about, you know. When he introduced when the lights go out, he dedicated it to Danny Sheehan and the guys at the Christic Institute. What was uh, what was your reaction to the song at the time? Do you, do you recall? I liked it a lot. Um, I remember the, you know, the, the rhythm of it. Um, it felt this one felt like he kind of did have it together and. You know, when you came out of those shows, guys, and you're thinking like, okay, you know, what's the next record, right? What, what, did, what, did, this sh- what did these shows <laughs> tell us about it, right? Did I think about Redheaded Woman? Not really. Did I think about Real World? Of course, right? But when the lights go out was the one that kind of stuck out. It was the one where you thought, okay, something really going on here, and this is going to be a big part of what comes. Turned out it wasn't. But that one, I think, probably resonated as much, if not more than any of the other new songs. And I certainly remember talking about it a lot after the fact. Um, I mean, both immediately after the shows. And then remember too, the Christic is really the only thing we have to hold on to for another two years. So that was the body of work of the moment was those songs we heard here. Yeah. When the lights go out, which was that the last song of, no, the last song of the main set is my hometown, correct? That's right. Okay, so he finishes the set with... Well, real, when the light, uh, yeah, then he comes out, right. My yeah. Hometown, then Real World, then he brings them out, yeah. So he finishes with When the Lights Go Out, which is another one of those very dark songs. Then he sits down at the back at the piano and goes into Thunder Road, which, of course, is one of his most meaningful and biggest songs to his fans. And uh, the first night in particular... He sort of stumbles part of the way through and he goes, I knew this was going to happen. And he does pick back up and he finishes the song. But it seems like, and you, of course, were in the audience, that the that gave the audience like it connected them to him. Oh, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen is not the perfect performer. He he just screwed up in front of us. It was almost like it lightened what had just taken place for the last, what was it, 60 to 70 minutes. Yeah, I think that was a moment of levity and connection that we probably all needed right about then. I mean, I, I do love the, both these readings of Thunder Road. It just, it's exactly what we needed. It's what you kind of, again, if you're 
now that you know it's in your head, he's going to play piano and you're thinking about what songs that could be, Thunder Road, 75. It's one of the things that you hope you hear sometime if you're our age. And we got to hear it. So, you know, and again, just that fragility that he was bringing and that willingness to not have it all um, completely dialed in and locked down, that he was just going to go for it. He was going to make it a high wire act and go out there and, I mean, again, publicly playing piano, like we take it for granted now that he does it, but he hadn't done it in 12 years. So I just remember the audience being totally with him in that moment and all just being so thrilled that we were getting, you know, one of the all time classics played for us in such a beautiful way. Well, the interesting thing about that, about the mess up is that the crowd starts singing the song for yeah, him. They fill in. And yep. I mean, I, you know, that's one of the only criticisms of the Nugs releases of these shows is that there is so little audience noise. So you don't hear that on, on, on the, re, on the recording, but being there and, or hearing the audience, uh, the audience recordings of it, you, it really was a, uh, it was quite a moment, uh, the moment, capital T, capital M. It was, but it's funny, Flynn, like, you know, I'm a train spotter, you're a train spotter. We're all people who think about the nuances of these things far more than an average person should. And (laughs) as I was listening to the archive versions of the shows back and I, and, you know, we got to the first inner whatever between songs and I'm like, oh yeah, the audience is way back. Um, When I thought about it again, I was like, you know, this is a show when he kind of tells you like, you're not going to be involved from the start. Now you're right that that moment happened and the audience came to his side and helped him in Thunder Road. And it's a magical moment when you were there. And I guess on some level, it's a magical moment on the audience tape. But I think if you, if we're being fair, this was not a show about the audience. This was a show about the intimacy of that performance on stage. And I think seen through that lens, I think the recording reflects what was really going on there. Yeah, maybe it doesn't document the full experience, but I think it is a better capture of the performance because it was never meant to be an audience recording. It was meant to be as close and intimate as I think we get on the archive version. And that's really what that show was. Yeah, things did happen. People yelled shit. He forgot some lyrics, but that's not what this show's about. No, I didn't say it was, it was, it, I know you're not what saying it was that, about, but you know, what I'm, but what I'm saying, Flynn is like, I just decided once and for all, I could give a shit if there was more audience in those recordings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and also that was what was available to release. And this is such an essential show. I don't know what would have been the solution to that. It couldn't have been to not release these shows because they're just too important. And again, there could have been a way, but I, I to, you know, you're you're gilding the lily at that point a little bit, and I I think really only aiming that improvement at the likes of us. I think these shows are beautifully realized. They were uh, also I was going to point out to you guys too. These are the last two things that were recorded and and mixed at the time by Bruce Jackson. This was the end of his work with Bruce. So he does the tunnel tour. He does these two shows, and then after the birth of his child. He's parts ways with Bruce and goes on to the audio engineering work he did. So the, the great Bruce, ja- the late great Bruce Jackson, who who brought such incredible sound quality to Bruce's shows, the, the Christic is his last work with him. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will. 
with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. The main set, as we were just talking about, ends with my hometown, which thematically is a perfect capper to everything that he's done on this evening before that. But then he steps off stage and he comes back, sits down at the piano, and I think we're all going to agree this is by far the most significant moment of the show. He performs a new song that I remember when I heard it on tape. Of course, you'll tell us what it was like to hear it in the building. It was just stunning. It was up there with the best work he had ever done. And I know it wasn't fully realized on the album when it eventually came out. But on these two nights, why don't you tell us what the reaction was to this magnificent song, Real World, as he played it for the first time? Well, I think... You know, you're right. Everything you said is true. I think um, everybody who had any deep interest in Bruce Springsteen who was in that building, which I hope was almost everybody, everybody responded to that song. Everybody knew something special had just happened. Everybody knew that was the song. Everybody thought that was the beginning of the great next chapter of Bruce Springsteen's songwriting. And I think both on the recording and certainly I can genuinely recall from my own experiencing <clears throat> or own experience of witnessing it was the total conviction with which he sings it. I mean, he's Incredible. singing it. Yeah. Like his life depends on it, but I think it's more like he's singing it like his life has just been affirmed by the birth of his child and by what he's got. So for all the darkness and, sharing of the dark corners of the mind that he does throughout that night, it culminates with this, like, but in the real world, right in the real place where it's really going on, what really matters just comes through so brilliantly in that song and in his just all consuming performance of it. And it's almost like, even if you didn't recall a single word other than the real world, the way in which he sang it, you just knew it mattered tremendously. You knew it was important. You knew it meant the world to him. And it felt like his next great anthemic masterpiece. You know, we all came away thinking real world is it. This is the next song. This is what it's all about. And then after real world, he brought out, brought back out Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt to, to finish a show with these two, uh, these two classics, Highway 61 Revisited and, and Across the Borderline. When they when the uh, when those two others came out, how did it feel? Did it feel like a kind of a release that it was that the, all the tension was was over? Yeah, Flynn, I think release is a good word. I think I think Bruce was having those two friends, artists with him on this bill, you know, it also meant, you know, he wasn't caring, even though obviously he was going to close and the majority of the crowd was probably there for him. It took some of the pressure off, right? He was going to play 90 ish minutes, hundred minutes. 
He had them in the encores. He knew he could rely on them. They were there to support him. He was there to support them. They were all there to support the cause. I think, yeah, you just felt this huge esprit de corps kind of come out, especially after what he'd said about Bonnie and seeing Jackson early on in the stories that he told during the night. It's like, and, 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 you know, here we are 18 years later, still together for all the right reasons. And yeah, it felt like a release. And then, you know, and Highway 61 is shambolic as it should be and and great fun and nice to see, you know, a Dylan song get played and appropriate given what was going on. And then, you know, across the borderline, I just think it's such an important song in Bruce's career. You know, it's another line of demarcation. You know, how many border songs does Bruce Springsteen write after he performs across the borderline? A That's lot. a great point. That's a great point. A lot point. of border songs, you know, and and borders are what divide people and borders are what, you know, once you cross that border, you know, the, the song is so beautiful. It's like, you know, there's land that I've been told it's been paved with gold. And then you also, you know, you may lose more than you'll ever hope to find. Like it, it has that, it has the promise and it has the disappointment all wrapped up in it. And I think, again, this night of, as you were pointing out, it's like, we have the darkness, we have the light, we have it all. It just that one song is so summational for what this thing's about. And I just think when you think about songs that influence Bruce Springsteen's writing, it'd be hard pressed to think of one that maybe had a bigger influence than Across the Borderline. I, I as I was saying, I think that is just a great point. And I had seen Across the Borderline. I was lucky to see it once in 88. And Me too. it seemed like such an important song, even on that tour and the way he used it, because if I recall properly, he played in the slot that was normally either from his own material, Walk Like a Man, and then when Walk Like a Man was played less Backstreets. And That's correct. Backstreets with Across the Borderline. I mean, he couldn't give a higher compliment to a song than that because, I mean, Backstreets is Backstreets. And you went one night and that was what you saw. And then the next night you saw this song – and and then he used it again in 92, 93, where he actually sang part of the song in Spanish. So it, it had clearly a really large impact on him. And, and uh, just fascinating to hear what you were just saying, because it does make you across the border, Madame Morris Banks and all these songs that follow. It's, it, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, and I also think it, it's a reminder that like, the, you know, he lived in Los Angeles, like the Los Angeles, the board, you know, the border between New York and New Jersey may be one thing, right? Um, but the border between Southern California and Mexico is has affected generations and lives. And the entire history of Los Angeles is ostensibly tied to Mexico and tied to the people who cross that border. So, yeah, I think it's and it's a beautiful song. It's just a beautifully written genius song that just captures that subject you know sometimes it is just that that most simple lyric that just gets it completely right and across the borderline is one of those and you know i think he did it again i think Abby lou does it with him somewhere after the fact too right there's uh no he did it in denver on the wrecking ball tour or maybe you're okay. thinking of when emmy lou joined him at giant stadium in 2003 across for the across, yeah across the Sorry, border Greg, no line <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'm many confused. people have made that con- yeah. <laughs> mistake. Yeah, I am confused too. So, yeah. Yes. Shame on me. But like, yeah, it's, it's, I love it. I love it here. It's the perfect way to, to finish the show. And I think, you know, connecting again to the, 
you know, remember back to the Christic and what's going on in these other countries. Like it's, it's fitting for that too. So yeah, absolutely magical ending. I loved it in 88. I was so thrilled to hear it again, you know, on these nights in 1990. All right. So the show's ended. How yep. are, how are you in the audience? Are you just like blown away, drained, <laughs> exhilarated? How do you feel when the lights first come back on and you're ready to uh, file out of the auditorium? I mean, you know, holy shit is probably the, <laughs> the phrase that many people uttered at that moment. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it was a like, I, I cannot believe what I just witnessed. Um, I can't believe I just heard brand new songs I never heard before. I can't believe Bruce Springsteen sat down and played songs I adore on piano. I can't believe that version of Darkness on the Edge of Town. I just couldn't fathom that he could reinvent that song in such a utterly brilliant way. It just, I was astonished by so many. And then it was immediately like trying to relive it, you know, trying to like, I mean, of course I was like, oh my God, the tapers, who's got the tape? Where's the tape? Like, that's, <laughs> we got to hear that again. We got to hear that again. Um, yeah. It just felt like this magical, utterly unexpected journey we had been taken on that was so full of highlights. There were so many moments. And I will say, as we did gather after, we actually, a bunch of us who traveled in for the shows all got together um, in a hotel room and had a little post-mortem party. And what we were talking about is, you know, we were talking as much about what he said as what he played, you know, it wasn't, and not story for story. It was just like, can you believe he told us this? Can you believe he said that? Can you believe he, you know, it was just that what we've been saying now, having heard the show so many times, everybody got it that night. Who is this Bruce Springsteen that's telling us so much about himself? And, and what is his relationship with the audience at this point? It was just like the whole thing felt brand new completely new. And in a way you're like, now where are we going? Right? Like what, wow. what does this mean? What, where on earth are we headed? You know, in, in the most delightful way where you're just like, Holy shit, all bets are off. I don't know, but man, that was thrilling. I can't wait to see it tomorrow. And is he going to change the set? You know? Well, in these shows, which stand on their own, you now walk out of that building. Everyone's wondering what, the future is going to hold mm -hmm. what the next album is going to be like. Now I know when I heard the tapes of the Christic shows and I heard real world, I ho heard soul driver. What arrived eventually certainly was nothing like what I expected. My buddy Roger and I, we got this tape and we played it together of soul driver, which had leaked from the, studio sessions and, right. and it started playing. We were like, well, what the hell is this? It was like nothing that I certainly I expected. Did you expect the sound that we eventually heard on songs like Soul Driver and especially Real World? No, um, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the hardest one to fully understand. And all we can do is speculate. And I can't put myself in his head. But if I had to speculate a little, um, partly because I think, you know, when we got Jode, right, in 95, that felt like to some, like it was out of nowhere, right? What? It's the ghost of Tom Jode? And 
Of course, the antecedent was Nebraska and that he was going to he made another Nebraska of sorts, although it's not as spare and solo and whatever. And there's other musicians and all that stuff. And that's five years later. Right. And then he tours solo for the first time. And that's all five years later. I got to think in some way there was a Joe like record that he had. Right. He hadn't recorded it yet, probably. But I think he had the intention, perhaps, for a record of that kind. And then he had the like, you're the biggest rock star in the world. MTV is still raging. Hair metal is everywhere. Grunge hasn't quite happened yet. You got to go make your huge follow up. Your last record was a sort of solo band record. We haven't seen you in three years. And you want to stay relevant and contemporary. And I think somewhere, whatever the idea of that was, and maybe this other kind of record that probably didn't get realized. I'm not saying it was written at the same time. I'm just saying the notion of a record like Joe that was probably still in him as well. You know, he tried to find some middle ground for some of these songs and it didn't, you know, it didn't stand the test of time. And I think he eventually gave in to make the kind of record that he wanted to make with Joe. And that, you know, Human Touch and Lucky Town, there's obviously great songs there. And some of the songs are greater now that they've been played in other forms and other arrangements. But real world does feel like the collateral damage of that period, if there had to be one, as like the best song he never quite got right. And look, the promise was that for him for years, and we didn't get the definitive quote unquote version of that till 2010. So who knows, you know, maybe real world isn't over yet. But yeah, I I just I do remember just thinking like, well, where it's gone I didn't see any of that coming at the Christic. So I don't know where that other influence came from, because what the Christic seemed to be pointing to is not ultimately what we got in 92. But I think it speaks a lot to what we got in 95 and beyond. See, I think his performance on stage, when you listen to it back, and of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, I think a lot of the artistic confusion is actually in his words and in his actions these nights from what I hear on the tape. And it really seems like he was at a spot in his career, even though he was Bruce Springsteen, he had sold 20 million records with Born in the USA. I I think he was just a little lost. And obviously they got lost in those sessions. I I think even he has admitted that now. He, uh, When he played Real World on the Devils and Dust Tour, he Mm -hmm. would sometimes preface it by saying, I didn't get this one right, but I'm going to get it right now. Yeah. I mean, look, what you do next, if you're Bruce Springsteen and you've had this arc from 73 to 88, where you're absolutely on top of the world, and then you park your band and say, I want to go somewhere else. um, And he's going to write songs that are not for a band or just meant for solo material. Like, I mean, you may be right how that he's lost, but I think the question marks that that moment would present you know, sometimes you'd know what you don't want before you figure out what you do want. Right. And I think he knew what he didn't want. He didn't know where to go next, but he knew he couldn't do what he had been doing. It had to be a different way. And that maybe it took that not quite working to then get him on the path that he went to in 95 and beyond. You know, the, 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 again, there are great songs across both those records, but sonically, it, you know, Maybe the first time that a Bruce Springsteen record just didn't feel organically honest. I think that's fair. You know? um, whereas organic and honesty are what the Christic shows are all about. Right. Um, that's why I brought and, it up. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, Hal, is that, you know, 
when you've shown a lot, maybe your first instinct after that is to go like, well, maybe I showed a little bit too much. You know, maybe I went a little bit too far. Maybe I need to look like a rock star and have a soul patch, you know, like it's, it's, it's possible that like, he wasn't ready to be that open and honest. And look, he didn't write his autobiography for decades. Broadway comes 27. Am I doing the math right? 27 years later. You know, but I think all the, you know, we're not exaggerating when we say the seeds of that's all there, but he needed to take the journey to be able to actually make that his primary art and performance, right? Here was just one night when, you know, for two nights, he just suddenly like threw away the script and showed us the truth. And then eventually over time, he kind of mixed it in. You know, we got more of the, of the real thing and, and, you know, some of what he says both on, you know, the Joe tour and on the Devils and Dust tour is can can be as candid as this, sometimes hilariously, sometimes not. But it's like, I think that first brave, candid moment that we then saw a lot of later is those two nights in November 1990. I always thought that Bruce kind of had a, I call it a born in the USA hangover where uh, he just got too much. 88, he tried to tone it down. He released that more or less solo record. Toured with the band, but he shook them, shook some things up. And then in 92, he realized that wasn't enough. In 92, he jettisoned the whole band for the tour. Still toured rock. But it, it took until Joe, where he just, he stripped literally everything away except for himself and the guitar. And it took, it took him that long to get over that. And I didn't realize I never thought about the Christic in, in in that in my little theory because or not just because, but now that I'm looking at it, it seems like it was a huge step in that process, even if it wasn't a linear one. Yeah. I mean, look, Jode isn't quite as stripped down as you suggest that it ultimately is. Well, the tour yeah. was. The tour was, yeah. If you're talking about yeah. the tour, that's another matter. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about, about the, the tours, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, when you said 95 and Joe. Yeah, look. Right. It took him five years to have the total conviction to put this show on the road. Right. And I I do find it interesting. And you do wonder, like, why didn't you bring a piano? Right. Why, why, Why did we just get solo acoustic guitar in 95 and not do a version of what the Christic was? But I think the body of work that he had written since then and and really was more like, as you guys have talked about a lot, it's like the Guthrie thing. And, you know, like he was going more for that troubadour Right. And storytelling thing. And obviously there's lots of songs that exist in that period too, that have never lived on. Like he was just writing in a different style and performing in a different style. And yeah, it it has echoes of this and certainly 12 string guitars and the darkness version is obviously basically the same, but like this was sort of all of it, right? The, the unheard songs, the old songs, the piano songs, the, the stories, like it just, it just was a revelation. It truly, truly was a revelation. And, you know, in this era where it's just so hard to be surprised by anything. And, I, you know, I know you guys went to Tampa for that very reason to have that like first show. I don't really know what's coming. You know, I honor that you made that choice. It's hard to stay uh, dark, you know, in a tour to not know what's coming. But I just will never be able to recreate what that was your very favorite artist who's been absent for years is going to play in a in a me in a method that he hasn't played in many years is he going to play new songs is he going to play old songs what's he going to do i have no fucking idea and how thrilling is that 
I've only really seen one show where that went on and not to the level of the Christic, of course, but the 93 Count Basie rehearsal show, which is a step in the process that we're talking about here. That's like a bridge from the Christic to Jode as, as we're talking about. And then as we've talked about before, seeds of many things later were planted in that Count Basie rehearsal show as they were in, in these Christic shows. So when you think about the 90s and it's considered a lost decade for Bruce, you really start here. And when you look at the whole decade collectively, he never really ter- returned to the peak that he had here at the Christic shows, perhaps maybe on just a, a couple of nights, uh, you know, the, obviously the third Asbury show mm. on the Joe tour in 96, but there's very few nights in the decade where he's really fully Bruce Springsteen. And, and then, and to bring a full circle and we can wrap it up here, as you noted very early in the show, then he returned to the band in 1999 and he really became Bruce Springsteen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. It's true. and. I mean, it's part of why these shows merit re-listens again and again and again, because so much of what follows can be traced back to this. Not to mention, they're just singularly extraordinary performances. If you're a fan of Bruce Springsteen and you have not given the Christic its due, drop everything you're doing, (laughs) put on some headphones, grab a box of Kleenex, and spend three hours going through what might be one of the greatest two nights in his entire career, or arguably is, you know, two of the greatest nights in his entire career. And I think that just about sums it up perfectly. We really appreciate you coming on. Really love hearing the the firsthand experiences that you, that you felt that you had those two nights in November the 33 years ago. Yeah. Don't say that. <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe. But thank you so much, Eric. It was a, just a tremendous pleasure. Amazing. Once again, that was Eric Flanagan talking about the Christic shows. And that was a really good conversation. A lot of insights to those shows and, and also brought back a lot of memories from, from those days. Really enjoyed that. And we appreciate Eric coming on and supporting our show. All the guys from Backstreets, it's been great since the show started that they've been there for us, and I hope people enjoyed that. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Yes, let's. None But the Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts and produced by Bull Market Entertainment. On the web, you can find us at mbtbpodcast.com, our Patreon page where you can find our bonus material and all sorts of interesting stuff we're doing is at patreon.com slash mbtbpodcast. And on Twitter, we're at mbtbpodcast. So thanks once again to Eric Flanagan for joining us and for Hal Schwartz. I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.